whistleblower report exposing lies deceptions and all that has assaulted our way of life we must take back our freedom and live as god designed in a free america that honors our constitution and our creator our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America, and I am here tonight with two of our airline captains who have some incredible revelations to share with all of us, actually going back a number of years, but very much relevant to all that we've been seeing take place with a government out of control under the COVID four years of tyranny that we've been covering on the whistleblower report really since the beginning. And this paints a bigger and darker picture because what we're seeing today is actually a continuation of persecutory behaviors carried out by our own federal government and business officials over a number of years for anyone who questions the government narrative. I was not as aware of how serious questioning the government narrative could be. I, I knew in medicine that we had, we, many of us that stood up to some of the lies of fraudulent clinical studies in years past would get a lot of criticism, but not the kind of targeted attack and destruction that we've been seeing in the last several years under COVID that we saw, for example, with the Bundy Ranch debacle a number of years ago. And now we're learning from firsthand people who experienced it, Captain Dan Hanley, a former civilian military and commercial airline pilot. I'll tell you more about his background in a minute. But what they experienced, and Captain Bahij Saliba is with us again tonight. Many of you remember, I've done other shows with him talking about the devastating consequences of the COVID mandates for airline pilots and the way in which it violated the law and violated the Federal Aviation Act. And we'll tie all of that together in how it relates to what Captain Dan Hanley went through right after the events of 9-11, when he too questioned the government narrative and what happened to him as a result of that. As I said, he's a retired civilian, military, and commercial airline pilot. He had accrued 20,000 flight hours 
in 15 different aircraft over an aviation career that spanned 35 years. In 2003, as a United Airlines B-777 captain, he was illegally and permanently grounded as such by the FAA and United Airlines management for speaking out regarding 9-11 related safety and security issues. Doesn't that sound familiar about what's happening to military and commercial airline pilots under the COVID tyranny as well? He fought his illegal grounding with the U.S. government for five years before his case was closed without the government ever reviewing his solid evidence or interviewing any witnesses. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We've been living that in the last four years. He currently serves as director and public spokesperson for a global grassroots effort called the 9-11 Pilot Whistleblowers, whose website is 911pilots.org and YouTube channel at 9-11 Pilots. He joins us for this whistleblower report from his home now in Islamabad, Pakistan, where he has lived for the last 14 years. So, Captain Hanley, thank you for your service to our country in the military and your service in commercial aviation as well. And Captain Saliba joins us as a an American Airlines pilot currently in limbo because of illegal actions by American Airlines related to the COVID vaccine mandates and masking requirements. And Captain Saliba has done other shows with us about the fact that he is taking his own case forward as his own attorney in suing the airlines. Quite a story and a lot of courage and a lot of diligent work on his part to be his own lawyer, but he has done incredible work on that and we're honored to have him on our team at truth for health foundation and the whistleblower report and captain hanley we're honored to have you here tonight so tell us what happened to you as a result of questioning the safety and security issues from 9-11 well i was a boeing 777 captain in uh, new york on 9-11, as a matter of fact, I was there that day. And uh, I was flying with, uh, after the fact, I was flying with flight attendants out of Newark who had lost friends in the crash in Pennsylvania of the United Airlines airplane, uh, Flight 93. And after 9-11, they were very fearful that there would be a copycat occurrence of the event. And the company and the uh, uh, FAA made promises of enhanced security measures they were going to take to prevent it from happening again, such as uh, cameras in the back of the airplane, secondary barrier protection, reinforcing the cockpit door, which they did do, federal air marshals, and another number of other promises that they made that they didn't keep. And the flight attendants said, hey, 
damn, we're sitting ducks back here. Can you say something or bring this up as a company? Well, as a captain, I felt obligated to respond to the request. So I went in initially just to my chief pilot and said, hey, Bob, here's here's what I'm faced with out here. And he said to me then, Dan, the government is really tough to deal with right now. We can't bring these issues up. They're really a tough cookie. And uh, that was the first subtle blowback I got from what I was saying and doing. Well, as time went on, I wrote the uh, executive, the vice president of safety for United Airlines and said to him, because uh, we were in bankruptcy at the time, that it appeared that the union uh, ability to represent pilots was being stifled because of the fact that we were in bankruptcy and they were extracting all these concessions from the pilot. And I got even bigger blowback from him where he said, you tell that so-and-so that affected Monday morning, if he wants to be vice president of safety, uh, he can uh, have my job. And I'm like, what kind of response is that? So long story short, rather than go into great detail here, because it would take an hour, was I followed the chain of command, but knew I was going up against one of the biggest airlines in the world. It was a victim airline of 9-11 that was in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And I didn't want to disrupt the apple cart and go public with anything that I was saying or doing. But I established the correspondence trail with letters and emails and even went so far as to record phone conversations and face-to-face -face conversations just to protect myself because I knew I was going out on a limb. Well, I continue with reports that were being stonewalled by the company, which prior to 9-11, that didn't happen. So when I saw I was getting nowhere, I was going to write a letter to the CEO of United Airlines saying, hey, here's where I am out on the line in the trenches, and here's what's going on, and say, we believe the pressures of bankruptcy is impinging upon the ability of the unions who represent pilots and i called my uh union president in new york and said mark i'm going to send this letter and to the ceo i go dan send it to me first and i'll forward it to the union lawyers in chicago which i did so i said i don't want to sit on this forever it's been going on for some time so he got back to me about four or five days later no he didn't get it back to me as a matter of fact it was the union attorney, the chief attorney for the union and the grievance committee chairman for the human union had me on a, a conference call uh, on speakerphone. And uh, I said, did you get a chance to read my letter? And they go, yes. I go, do you agree with the contents of the letter? They go, yes. I said, well, you're my union legal representative. What do you suggest I do? And he says, the grievance committee chairman said, Go ahead and send that letter in if you never want to fly another United Airlines airplane again in your life. And I said, why? What will they do to me? And they said, they'll find a way to professionally, medically, psychologically, or otherwise ground you for life. We've seen it happen before. Well, I had to. Okay. And to further protect myself, I'm backtracking a little bit here. Because I had seen this process of elimination of pilots through psyche valves, I went to the best psychiatrist and psychologist I could find in Atlanta, which is my home domicile, and said, here's where I am with United. Here's what I think they're going to try to do. I'll come over for set, uh, therapy, test me, whatever you need to do to prove 
my soundness of mental health, which they did, and I did. So I was thinking to myself, well, they can't touch me. I've got witnesses. I've got this correspondence trail. I've got the medical report, et cetera, and the voice recorded conversations uh, that were very incriminating for some people. And uh, I, I said, well, let me think about, oh, I said to him, okay, you're my legal representative. How far in can I expect you to follow me on this? And he goes, not very far. So I said, but I wow, paid. why that's shocking. Oh yeah, well they were on they were on the ropes about to go face down on the on the canvas uh, with this uh, corrupt bankruptcy judge who was giving the company everything they wanted. So they were in a quandary that way. But he told me we're not going to follow you in very far. So I thought to myself, I'm going to need to get an attorney. So what I wound up doing, I thought, okay, I'm not going to send the letter in. I'm going to implicate the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. So what I did was send in a series of reports all electronically online. They're called uh, flight safety awareness reports. And basically in these reports, I just reiterated what I said in the letter in seven or eight reports and sent it in. And the very next day, I get a call from my assistant chief pilot saying, you've been taken out of schedule. I says, for what? He says, we have these reports on our desk. I go, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be guaranteed anonymity sending in these reports, and I can send them in with impunity. Uh, why do I, what are you doing with my reports, and why do I have to come up there? I'm reporting safety issues that both you and the chief pilot are familiar with. He goes, I'm giving you a direct order. And I said, okay, well, the union's not going to represent me legally. I want to bring in my own attorney to protect myself because I'm way on a limb here. No, you can't do it. As well, then we're at an impasse because I cannot submit to what the company's doing to me here without legally protecting myself. And we hung up with that. Well, long story short, after several, you know, after a few weeks, I was still on pay at the time. I get a call from my chief pilot and he says, I ran into the chief flight surgeon out of Denver at the training center. And he asked, is Hanley one of yours? And I said, yes. And he said, put that so-and-so on sick list. And I said, Bob, he says, you're on sick list. And I go, Bob, now this is punitive. I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't seen an aeromedical uh, professional or anything. He goes, I'm sorry, but my hands are tied on this. I tried to fight him on it. And he said, it came from up on top. So here I am out on sick list at an impasse with the company. There's a lot more stories where I was trying to make, uh, trying to compromise with the company saying, hey, look, all I was doing was reporting on, on safety and security issues here. And I couldn't get nowhere with that. So I was running out of sick lists, which means I was gonna go non-pay. So I called up the chief pilot again and said, Bob, this is punitive now, I'm gonna go non-pay. I got overhead expenses just like you. And he said, uh, Dan, if you submit to the employee assistance program, it's endorsed by the company, the FAA, and the union that guarantees that your pay will come in. All you have to do is whatever the company asks you to do. We'll fly you up first class to Chicago. You see a doctor, and that'll be the end of it. So I thought, well, that'll be easy enough. I still thought I was protected, right? So they flew me up to Chicago. I went over to the medical department and met with this Dr. McGuffin. And they also had the employee assistance program manager in there. And the woman 
in his office with me, you know, and I asked him, I said, do you know why I'm here? He goes, no, tell me. So I gave him a thumbnail sketch of what I was doing there. And he first question he asked me was, are you seeing a mental health professional? I said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I'm seeing two of them. Would you like to speak with one? And I pulled out my cell phone because I had told the doctor that I was going up to Chicago. And I says, uh, Dr. Mo, this is Dr. McGuffin. He'd like to speak with you. So he's on the phone. In the meantime, uh, the chief pilot from Chicago and the head of the EAP program shows up. And I went over to them. I said, you know what I'm doing here? And they go, yeah. And I pulled out a FAA whistleblower report because I was going to leave this office and go over to the field office and report, uh, file an FAA whistleblower report. And it never got that far. But uh, after he got off the phone, he said to me, would you be willing to go over and see our uh, our mental health professional? I, and I'm thinking, well, I got to go along with what they're saying here. And I said, sure, I was expecting you to say that. So these two pilots drove me over there. And on the way, I gave him details of what I was doing. And one of them even said, hey, Dan, you make me proud to be an Alpha pilot standing up for safety and security like this. So... I get over thinking I'm going to a doctor's office and it was a mental health hospital in Huffman Estates, Illinois, right? So I still, still thought, well, maybe the doctor's office is inside. And we went to the main desk to check in and a young Catholic nun who turned out to be a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, meets us and takes us over to an office. And I spent a couple of hours trying to explain this non-pilot nun what specifically I was doing there, and so I wasn't getting through. And we talked about another a number of other issues too. She goes, well, the company wants you to see a psychiatrist, and I'm a psychologist. She goes, and I had gotten up at four in the morning. It was late, late in the afternoon, early evening. And she goes, we can make arrangements for you, a room here for you, and you can see the psychiatrist first thing in the morning. Oh and, my heavens! This well, is shocking. How they yes misled you and lied to you well i was naive enough to believe them and i was tired anyhow so i go yeah that'll work so she takes me upstairs uh to the check-in desk and this is when i knew i made a mistake because they locked the door behind me okay and when i get over the check-in desk i hand it had to hand over all my personal belongings, including my belt so I wouldn't hang myself and my shoes for some reason. And I thought I was going to get a private room. Well, they take me down the hall to a room with a paranoid, schizophrenic, very ill man, I found out later. And uh, she said, you have to check under your bed every night, meaning I was going to be there, implying I was going to be there more than one night. She goes, "Uh, because this is a co-ed wing, and female patients try to get in and uh, sexually molest uh, patients. And I'm going, well, I'm going to lock the door. And they go, you can't. We check on patients at night. So and then they came. I got settled in the room. And uh, they came back in and said, uh, we want to give you some sleep medication. I go, no, I don't want it. I'm not. I'm tired already. They go, no, we insist. So here's me thinking, okay, I got to go along with the program. Here I go, oh, my so, heavens. Oh, this is just shocking. Yeah, so I go down the hall, and it was like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I'm standing in a line at this medication window. And even when I got up there, they made me open my mouth, put it on my tongue, and then swallow it 
with water and then open my mouth again to prove I was taking a spill. I go, this is ridiculous, right? Well, it gets it gets worse, doctor, because uh, <laughs> at 4 a.m. in the morning, I wake up, I'm on the floor in the dark, surrounded by nurses and a doctor. The nurse saying his blood pressure is 60 over 40. And I had, my head was killing me and it turned on my whole right side of my face was swollen from the fall I had. And I thought I was dying when she said that blood pressure. And I was real confused and disoriented what the heck I was doing on the floor. But they suspected I got up to use the bathroom and passed out. And I don't know what the matter Yeah, you had a, I, I suspect you had a syncopal reaction from the orthostatic drop in blood pressure from the medication they gave you. Yeah, yeah. And I never did find out exactly what the medication was. But they rushed me the next day for a physical, an extensive physical. I suspect to cover themselves. And then they said, after I had to go have breakfast with all these men and women that were ill. And uh, after breakfast, they said, okay, you've got to go come for group therapy sessions. I go, uh, you don't understand what I'm doing here. I'm supposed to see a psychiatrist. And they go, no, it's, it's hospital policy. So I thought, here we go playing the game again. So I, went in and sat, listened to all these people's story. I didn't contribute anything, but it was very, uh, <coughs> by this time I was pretty outraged. And uh, they, I went back down to my room and uh, two nurses came in and said, we want to give you some tests. So I said, where's the psychiatrist? They go, she's not available right now. So they gave me the Myers-Briggs and the Minnesota test, which I'd already taken with my own mental health professionals in Atlanta. And, uh, I'd been through all this with my people down in Atlanta, as a matter of fact. And uh, so I wound up spending the day there and they never saw the psychiatrist. And they said, well, she should be back in tomorrow. So that after, that evening, this guy in the room snored so loud I couldn't sleep. So I, uh, it was about four in the morning. I got him walked down to the check-in desk and said, can you get in my belongings? And get me a book I want to read till I get sleepy so they did and I was sitting down the hall reading this book under a light and in the dark end of the hall I see a man approaching a tall African-American guy with a real expensive suit on so I thought he was a doctor and he comes up and says hello Dan I said well he knows who I am right I says hello and he goes I know why you're here and what you're doing I go you do so he said what are you reading I know it's a spiritual book, which I was reading for moral courage. But I, I said, uh, it's a spiritual book. And he goes, so we small talked a little bit. And he goes, why don't you just drop what you're doing and go back to work? So now I'm thinking, well, this guy isn't a doctor saying something like that. And I said, well, it's because I believe what I'm doing is what a professional airline pilot should be doing in the interest of safety and security. And he goes, okay and walk back up the hall and I'm going, who is that guy? So um, the next day I finally, I had to go to group therapy session again. And I finally see a psychiatrist and she comes in, she's very cordial, sits down and talks to me. She was an Indian woman. And uh, she sits down and we're talking for a while. And uh, she says to me, uh, I said to her, well, I was supposed to see you yesterday and I didn't. I said, can you uh, tell me based on what you've seen from my test so far, 
uh, what your diagnosis is going to be. And she said, uh, I'm going to say you're bipolar. And I, I laughed because I knew what that was. And I said, I haven't exhibited any symptoms of that mental disorder. I, I said, I've got mental health professionals in Atlanta who beg to differ with you on this diagnosis. I'll go take it up with them. So I said, look, I said, uh, I, I want to be released. And we had a debate about that. And finally, she agreed to to release me. Well, when I got, well, let me back up. All while this was occurring, United Airlines was kind enough to call my two kids in Atlanta and said, something's happened to your daddy's in a mental hospital in Chicago. So that stigma stuck for these two young kids thinking, oh, something happened to him, okay? He's gone off the deep end. And, you know, uh, this is just cruel. To... Oh, it was. It was. And they called my wife at the time, who was the United Flight Attendant, just checking in in London to the hotel. And they called her and said, we're sending you back through New York to Chicago. Something's happened to your husband. He's in a mental hospital. So by the time my wife got there, she's like freaking. I go, Jeannie, nothing's happened to me. I says, I'm outraged about what's going on here. I said, I'm going to get out. I've got enough evidence and I'm going to take United and the FAA as a cleaner. <clears throat> so she finally released me. But by the time I got out, uh, I found out from the union lawyers that they had talked to an aeromedical consultant and uh, a union aeromedical consultant who was working with the FAA and they were going to permanently ground me. So that's, that's what happened to me. That's how I got grounded. I, thought I had all, no, I had all this evidence and witnesses. And I thought to myself, okay, here we go. Well, I set out trying to find an attorney and I couldn't find one when they found out I was with United, this big airline in bankruptcy, a victim airline at 9-11, and we'd have to fight it in the corrupt Chicago court system and they'd run, run away from me. Okay. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take on the government myself, like Captain Saliba's doing now. So I started, well, you name it. I filed FAA whistleblower report letters, emails, phone calls to every level and branch, relevant level and branch of the U.S. government for five years, including presidents, attorney generals, assistant attorney general, criminal division, my own U.S. federal senators and uh, and congressmen in Atlanta. My senator says, uh, I'm sorry you're going through this. I'll get right back to you with an answer. And he came back a few days later with a letter saying, I'm sorry, but as a U.S. senator, I have no jurisdiction over matters such as these. So finally, I had it up to the Department of Transportation Inspector General's level. And I, was, I had presented all this evidence and material to him. And I called him and I said to him, uh, Scott, I said, you got all this information. Where are we going with this? And he goes, well, there's a provision in the regulations regarding FAA uh, whistleblower reports that you have to submit a report to the Department of Labor within OSHA within 90 days. And you didn't comply with that requirement. And I go, God, I'm not trying to get my job back. I'm trying to report a federal crime. This is recall. And he goes, well, I talked to my boss and they've closed your case. We're not going to go any further with it. And you know, so I, this is very parallel 
to what we've been seeing throughout the four years under the COVID and the way in which the laws have not been followed, people have been persecuted. Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk further about this right after the break because there are so many parallels and this goes back years before COVID. So stay tuned, everyone. We will be right back after the break. This is Dr. Lee for America with the Whistleblower Report talking about the government persecution this time of airline pilots, but it has been happening across all sectors for far longer than we realized. We'll be right back after the break. Check out our website, www.truthforhealth.org and truthforhealthstore.com, where you can find lots of high-quality, innovative nutraceuticals to help you stay healthy and improve your health and resilience, especially if you got the shot. We'll be right back. Check out the new Truth For Health store at truthforhealthstore.com. We have exclusive professional formulas with exciting new products, including True Mitochondrial Boost that can help improve your energy, memory, focus, and concentration. All of our products are manufactured in certified compliant facility using good manufacturing practices approved and inspected by the FDA. Check us out, www.truthforhealthstore.com. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America here with Captain Dan Hanley, former military and United Airlines pilot, as well as a civilian pilot, and Captain Bahij Saliba, American Airlines pilot who is suing American Airlines. And we'll briefly talk about his saga tonight, but Um, lots of previous shows on all that he is undertaking as his own lawyer. But I'm deeply bothered by the weaponization of psychiatry, mental health, by the weaponization of medical evaluations against these pilots, and in different ways, similar events have happened with both of them where capable, experienced pilots with a long exemplary career who are trying to warn about safety issues affecting the flying public are then persecuted by not only the government and the FAA, but the union and their employers, who all of them should be focused on aviation safety and security. It's a very chilling prospect for those of you listening who are flying on commercial aircraft when you hear 
pilots trying to warn about problems that affect safety and security, and they are the ones persecuted. So, Captain Hanley, what what transpired after that? I mean, the government wouldn't hear your case. The airline had grounded you. You you obviously had no income. What what happened? Well, I had I had a pension, and I didn't start collecting my Social Security until age sixty five. But eventually, I got into another whistleblower issue that involved the United bankruptcy that I won't get into. But what wound up happening and it ended tragically for me because it did destroy a 27 year good marriage, which alienated my two kids who blame me for the divorce, still believe in the official 9-11 story and thought I was a whacked out conspiracy nut. I destroyed my reputation as a pilot and a, a 35 year career in aviation. And I lost about $4 million in pay, pension and stock. So I, I paid a heavy price just for me trying to report security issues, which incidentally, basically what I was doing was saying, hey, the aviation security system's a farce. You've got too many holes in the system. And they couldn't have me out there on the line say, saying these kind of things. So it destroyed me. And that's what sent me down. I won't get into what I'm doing now, but that's what sent me down the road to trying to find other pilots this had happened to. And I wound up creating another grassroots organization called the Whistleblowing Airline Employees Association that I recruit. I brought in people. Actually, it wasn't just pilots. There were federal air marshals, flight attendants, mechanics, FAA controllers. And I actually had a, a radio talk program that I'd interview them on. And I had a website and blog and all that. But we got nowhere with it. I was working with the... Uh, at the uh, National Whistleblower Center and the Government Accountability Project in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you're familiar with those two organizations, but one of them told me late in the program, Dan, if you're a federal whistleblower in the United States, you stand less than a 2% probability of winning your case. The system's rigged against you. And that's how these mo carpet mobsters get away with this with impunity because they know they can. The system's rigged. And what happened to me and what happened to Captain Saliba, it sends a chilling signal out to other would-be whistleblowers out there to keep your head down. Well, we're seeing that with military federally protected whistleblowers today. I mean, yeah. we've had the Military Advisory Council for the Foundation. We've done legal defense grants to help protect them. And I am just shocked at what we've been seeing in the last four years of the way in which whistleblowers are persecuted. They're not protected at all. I, I okay. can believe what you said on the percentage of 2% chance of winning your case. Most of the time, they are the ones that are suffering the damage when they're supposed to be protected. Right. Well, my case goes all the way back to 2003 and I got a, I won't go through them, but I got a list of other pilots that I'm familiar with their cases. And I'll just touch on one, a female Delta captain named Carlene Pettit. She made the news, which was unusual because her case was unique, but her case lasted eight years and she wound up spending uh, $900,000 in legal fees, but she eventually won her case 
and they had to reimburse her for her legal expenses. But she had a PhD in aviation safety and was reporting issues at Delta. And they did an identical thing to her, took her out of the line, made her go see a psychiatrist, diagnosed her as bipolar, and grounded her. And the senior vice president of flight operations for Delta Airlines, who was deeply involved with her grounding, went on become, to become the FAA administrator. And when this all blossomed, his name was uh, Dixon, uh, he wound up stepping down from office because it was such a controversy but she's a unique case i've got others in here on my list that uh they weren't so lucky it's just absolutely devastating what our government agencies have been doing for decades that the american public has no clue has been going on to destroy good people who are simply trying to do the right thing. I mean, we've seen it in my medical profession throughout a number of years, but especially in COVID. Captain Saliba, how does this parallel what you went through at American Airlines? That is a textbook um, operation for, I would say, most cor corporations, but specifically airlines, the minute you bring up safety issues and they don't like what you're talking about, the first thing they resort to is the fitness for duty examination to either silence you or get rid of you. And uh, sadly, the unions, the pilot unions do not support the pilots that go through the, the process. They pretend that they support you what they tell you the first thing they tell you we can prepare you for that examination and what they are saying is basically telling the company we're going to prepare the subject so you can take control of the situation and silence him and or get rid of the get rid of the individual so uh well, then why do pilots join the union if the unions are stabbing them in the back when they need representation and that's that's it is the i hate to say this but it is ignorance and trust you uh really in in the in the aviation industry uh we place a lot of trust in people we work with especially the airline itself um we look at the airline as someone who delivers to us a system that is safe. Um, uh, there, there's, a, there's a term that I'm sure Captain Hanley is familiar with. It's called uh, reasonable uh, assurances. For example, when we take an aircraft, when we are assigned to an aircraft, we, have, uh, we would have received reasonable assurances from the company, from the maintenance department, that the aircraft is, is um, uh, fully compliant to, to operate. So, and we replicate that process in everything that we do uh, in our daily routine. So when we uh, look into our manuals, everything is provided to us. And we expect that uh, the flight department has done everything they need to do so that we are compliant with the laws. Now, the same thing applies to the pilot union. We believe that 
the pilot union is there to represent our interests because that is in their um, uh, 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 in their bylaws. It says that that's what we do as a union. When in reality, a labor union, a pilot labor union, uh, statutory authority is to negotiate for rates of pay, work rules, and work conditions. And really, that's it. Everything else that they do is just uh, gravy, and uh, they don't have to do it. So they kind of lead you down this rosy path that you think they're going to do things for you, but they don't have to. And it's, it's something that uh, is misunderstood by by pilots. I mean, I didn't even uh, understand it, understand that uh, clearly until I got involved in uh, in my litigation against the union and the airline uh, as a result of this uh, of the jabs. Uh, again. Uh, the union lawyers represent the union. They don't represent the pilots simply because the union is uh, an entity on on of itself and 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 the contracts they make or the agreements they make with the companies is something that the lawyers that they hire are there to protect. So they're not there to really represent you. It's up to them. Um, they, they have a duty to represent you, but they don't have to take it all the way. They do the minimum. So if there's anything that threatens their existence, they're not going to step into it. So as, as uh, Captain Hanley explained, when they told him, oh, we're not going to go, we're only going to go that, you know, so far with you. We're not going to go all the way. That's exactly what they were telling him. We're not going to jeopardize the entity that is the union that has a duty to represent the rest of the pilots. You're, you're, you're the outlier here, and we're not going to stick our neck out for you, basically is what they were telling him. And uh, I'm, I personally, I'm not a union member, uh, which gave me uh, an advantage, if you will, because I saw things completely different than everybody else during this uh, COVID, uh, I call it the announced pandemic. And when I uh, noticed that there, there are inconsistencies, especially with the J&J &J, uh, product, and I brought it up to the attention of the company, uh, that's when they turned their guns on me and, and uh, they used the same weapon as they did uh, on uh, Captain Hanley, which is the fitness for duty. Uh, the only thing I did different, different is that I did not engage. I knew what was, what was coming down, down, down the pipe and I said, no, I immediately started my litigation process. And uh, as a pro se litigator, I was able to do it because as you said, Dr. Bleed, there was nobody, no lawyer would, would touch uh, anything that's related to the shots or uh, the masks, as, as it was the case with uh, Captain Hanley way back uh, post-September 11. Nobody wants to touch it because they're going up against uh, multi-billion dollar corporations and the government. So I have a slight advantage than anybody else uh, I believe in, in this in this instance, and uh, I've become very well versed in uh, federal regulations, and uh, and uh, I think I'm doing fine. It's just that the courts are corrupted, and we just have to keep pushing to to see the end of this. Well, Kevin Haley, did you also find uh, the same issue with the judges and the and the courts being? corrupted that we've seen in the last four years where 
judges just won't rule. They just ignore case law. They ignore constitutional law. I, I mean, it's shocking for someone who had, I, I really had not seen such blatant failure to rule on points of law as we've seen the last four years. Was that something you were encountering as well years ago? Uh, would you like me to get into the United Bankruptcy and what I knew from that? Well, certainly in the time we have left, whatever okay. you I'll think would be helpful a... for people well, to check... understand. Okay, United was in bankruptcy and went to the court and got them to distress terminate a $10 billion pension fund. And after a couple of years after the fact, a Chicago millionaire approached me and said, hey, that same judge presided over my company's bankruptcy, and we've got proof that he was mobbed up, that he's tied to organized crime. And I wound up working with him for about five years, and it was a total eye-opener to me to realize what uh, Captain Sleeve has been talking about, corrupt judges, just how totally corrupt the system is. Uh, he who has the most money and political clout usually wins in, in courts because they're so corrupt. Uh, so I I wish Captain Saliba well uh, with where he's going, and he's got a solid case. But uh, myself personally, in light of what happened to me and other issues that I've been involved with, I've lost all faith and trust in the U.S. US government, including the court system. Well, I would have to say I have definitely reached that conclusion in the last four years. And it has been even more staggering under the Biden administration that is totally lawless now. And, and in fact, to your points about aviation safety, we have an invasion on our southern border of military age males, criminals, terrorists. Lord knows what is coming across the border because there is no checking on any of them. And they are being, right here in Arizona, they are being brought across the border by our government, Border Patrol, DHS, local Pima County officials and sheriffs. I mean, it's absolutely stunning. And those people are being put on planes at Tucson International Airport, Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport, with no ID, no check, and they're still doing the grope and search of American citizens. And American citizens are denied boarding if their ID is expired. But meanwhile, these illegals with, with no ID are flying all over the country. Yeah. So what's to keep us from having another terrorist attack with what's been coming across the border and is being flown on airplanes while they're still engaging in the double standard of subjecting Americans to search, grope and search, I call it. And this flood of people from third world countries that are a very ominous looking crowd when you start looking at all the, the tats and the gang markings, as well as the fact that they don't speak English. We, we, 
many have been, I mean, we have whistleblowers on the border telling us that they've been released from prisons and mental institutions in other countries and transported here. So it's quite alarming. What, what upsets me real quick is uh, a couple months back, the U.S. government said they had reports there were elements of Hezbollah and Hamas in Mexico trying to cross the border. And my fear is they're going to have another false flag that they're going to say. Oh, I, I don't think there's any question. I think yeah. you're absolutely right. We, I, I'm 80 miles from the border. And so I'm in contact with former Border Patrol people, retired military people down near the border. We have staff who live down near the border. And there are Ukraine weapons that the U.S. military, state-of-the-art, the AT-4s and RPG-7s that were sent to Ukraine for military purposes in combat that are now in the hands of the drug cartels just south of the Arizona border. Wow. And those weapons are, I mean, our military people have done interviews with me and they, they say, you know, those weapons are capable of vaporizing an armored SWAT vehicle that any law enforcement in the U.S. has available to them. And that's in the hands of the drug cartels. The drug cartels are working with, we've known that since the Obama administration in my work with Border Patrol people then. So they, were, they are working with Islamic terrorists Hezbollah and Hamas have been here probably since the Obama administration coming through the Mexico-Arizona border. Oh, really? I didn't realize that. Oh, yes. No, I, that I know for a fact because I actually met with General Jerry Boykin and the head, the president of the former Border Patrol Association who was on the counterterrorism task force. And the, we had a meeting with five of us in Arizona, business, medicine, and military and border patrol. And that was well documented during the Obama administration. But no one did anything about it. Right. Until President Trump started interviewing and, and listening to and consulting with some of the same people that I had known in Arizona. And he started taking the border seriously. And that's when I could tell that he was listening to people who knew what they were talking about because he was bringing up things that we had been trying to get attention on for the previous eight years. So I think you're right. I think there is a very, very high risk of a false flag or a another terrorist attack that's real it may not be a false flag it may be a very real attack True, that's possible but uh, given the history of false flags uh with the united states starting with uh gulf of tonkin and you know all the false flags that that i'm talking about uh what they're proposing for operation northwood etc that uh it wouldn't surprise me at all, all what they would pull off and blame it on Hezbollah and Hamas to get the public support behind them and what's going on in Gaza. 
Well, I, I think you're right. I mean, you go back to what you said about the Gulf of Tonkin. There's the assassination of John Kennedy. There's, the, I think, part of the assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan had to do with intimidating and threatening him if they for things that they were trying to make him toe the line and do. Right. And then the getting Nixon out. I, I mean, I, it's just, it's truly staggering. And the whole 9-11 situation that I've been digging into more in recent years as a result of all of the other things that have come to light. And I know that is something that you have spent extensive time researching. And I would like to have you back to talk about the 9-11 pilots and whistleblowers and what has what all of you have researched that ties in because so much came from 9-11 that we're actually seeing playing out today. Right. I mean, we're talking about NSA wiretaps, the Homeland Security, and uh, the Patriot Act, the name three things that evolved. Yes. And uh, they had that all planned in advance. They had the Patriot Act all written out, and they they signed it within days of 9-11. So uh, this is a well-planned operation by the U.S. government against the people. Well, we will have you back to talk further about that and go into a lot more depth on that. Are there any closing remarks both of you would like to make tonight about the government persecution and destruction of anyone questioning the narrative? Let me let me uh, say a real quick word, and then I'll let uh, Captain Hanley uh, close. I think that uh, an effort to um, not allow or disallow corporations to use the fitness for duty to silence uh, safety uh, whistleblowers is extremely important. And it is not only used for safety matters, but also for other uh, political, if you will, uh, interests uh, as well. So as we know now, we've got corporations doing the, uh, I'm just going to come on and say it, they're just doing the dirty work for the government. So uh, that has to stop. So uh, the fitness for duty is a very important element in, in their operation, and that, that has to stop as well. And, you know, I I have personally been involved with military service members who had exactly the same weaponization of fitness for duty used against them as whistleblowers. In fact, I was on the phone for five hours one night trying to save a young man, be a witness to the attempted forced psychiatric hospitalization and forced medication of an army captain for exactly the same thing. And had I not been there on the phone all that time and got his attorney on the phone, he would probably not have survived the night because they were determined to silence him. 
Wow. No, so I know exactly what you're talking about. I've seen it happen in settings in my medical career, but this situation that I've seen, the weaponization of fitness for duty in our military and in the civilian world is very chilling. It's the Soviet gulag all over again. Right. They call it psychopathological methods of dissent. There's a Russian name for it, but that's exactly what they do. But they permanently intern people in mental institutions to silence them. So, uh, and keep them medicated so they can't right. speak up. In fact, you can actually make someone psychotic by over-medicating them with psychotropic medication. Oh. I've seen it happen. I'm, I mean, yeah. I've seen patients who were pushed into psychosis with over-medication. I've treated some of them trying to get them stabilized again. So it's, it's a very, very slippery slope to force psychiatric hospitalization and prolonged detainment as we're seeing with the J6 prisoners as well. They mm-hmm. are detained in jail, but it's the same concept. America, it's time to stand against the evil that has overtaken our government and corporations that are doing the government's dirty work. Listen to the warnings of these two courageous airline pilots who have lost a great deal personally and professionally, financially, and have been persecuted by our own government and this goes back to 2003 for captain hanley and it has been going on since the covid tyranny with captain saliba and they are the tip of the iceberg it's time for we the people to stand against this evil and say no more our government is lawless and we need to be the ones to hold them accountable to follow the rule of law as our founders envisioned. This is Dr. Lee for America. We'll be back with a follow-up story from Captain Hanley about the 9-11 pilot whistleblowers and all that they have been uncovering for all these years. And hopefully Captain Saliba will be back with us as well to give us an update on his litigation. This is citizen action at its best. So be the change in your community that you would like to see. And let's stand together. We need to stand strong together like the farmers in France, the farmers in Germany and Poland, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Holland, all across Europe. The farmers and truckers are standing up against tyranny. America, where's your backbone and fighting spirit? Let's stand against the evil we see in our country. We'll be back again with another whistleblower report. Thank you for joining us today.